0: You can't rewrite the Doctor Who podcast Not one night And welcome to episode 71 of the Doctor Who podcast. Now the last podcast, well the last proper podcast, we talked all about Big Finish which was a fairly recent development in the Doctor Who continuum. This time we're going to go back right to the beginning, take a look at the first Doctor. So let's put the DVD in and take a look at the quite excellent actor that is William Hart.
1: Guys, um, can I just ask a couple of questions? Sure. Have you been tidying up in here? It seems like really clean, and like everything's <laughs> in the right place. Have and you...
2: someone's replaced the curtains. Who has
0: replaced the curtains? <laughs> and we're not reverting to stereotypes here at all, are we, guys? <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, well I'm, I'm glad my voice has dropped back to where it should be. <laughs>
0: Though quite right. This place does look like it's had a little bit of um, care and attention, shall we say. Slightly different kind of care and attention to to that which the three of us usually lavish on it. But uh, yes, our camper van, in case you have no idea what we were talking about, was invaded seven days ago by our <clears throat> wives and sweethearts. Anyway, we're back and um, we, it would appear... That you quite enjoyed uh, the slight change in format uh, to what was episode 70 of the Doctor Who podcast, Uh, so much so that we received two pieces of audio feedback within 12 hours of it going online, Uh, the first of which is from our regular contributor of feedback, Lex Pendragon. Take it away, Lex.
2: Is that vanilla essence I smell?
0: Hey, guys. This is Lex Pendragon. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I just wanted to say I listened to your uh, spouses and children episode from this week, and it was fantastic. I just had to actually record something and send it in and say that it was great to listen to everybody, and they all performed wonderfully. Thank you for putting out the podcast. Thank you very much, Lex. Great piece of feedback there. And that leads us nicely into our second piece of feedback from Adam from the 20 Megabyte Doctor Who podcast. I think I probably got the name wrong there, Adam. Sorry. Look, you've, she's even disinfected the bench tops.
2: Hi, Trev, James and Tom. It's Adam here from the 20 Megabyte Doctor Who podcast. I just wanted to send you in this message to congratulate you on the brilliance of episode 70. And uh, maybe you've struck on a superb idea for an original Doctor Who podcast, the Doctor Who Widows, because I certainly would like to hear the ladies back together again to discuss what it's like living with you lot on a more regular basis, so try and talk them into it. Um, I have to admit though, when I had before it had sort of come about uh, and was made clear what was going on, I did think for a while there that James was on helium. So anyway, yes. Please try and talk them into it, because I'd certainly download it. Cheers. Bye-bye. Well, he he does raise a very interesting question in in that particular bit of feedback. Thank you. Um, When are our good ladies going to be starting their own podcast?
0: Well, I think, Adam, it's probably quite clear that you didn't listen to all of the last Doctor Who podcast, because just after... The closing themes, you had some credits. And in those credits, you had one particular line addressed your question. In fact, here it is again, just for you. Of course, thanks to our wives and sweethearts. That's Megan, Sarah and Angela. And no, they will not be starting their own podcast anytime soon. So hold fire on those emails. So, in other words, Adam, the answer is no, they will not be forming their own podcast. <laughs> and if you had any idea of how difficult it was to get all three of them to agree to this, this was about four <laughs> months in the making. Trev, Tom and I have been doing some serious negotiating. The minute I mentioned the idea to Angela, it was no, absolutely no way it's never going to happen so i'm afraid adam you're going to have to cling on to episode 70 is the only time you're ever going to hear the three of them together nice idea though um, getting them all together once again but it's 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 just not gonna happen
2: that's that's a real shame because i've gone to the trouble of registering wifecast.com and everything um w- what am i going to do with that domain now
1: i could try and get another wife if that helps You could probably make some money from from some German businessmen, I would have thought. Quite possibly. Anyway, (laughs) let's get back to what
0: we're actually going to be discussing this episode, which is not our respective wives and sweethearts. It's going to be William Hartnell and all things Azteci. We're going to be taking a detailed look at the first Doctor story of the Aztecs, which I have to say right at the outset, before Tom and Trev say a word, one of my favourite first Doctor stories ever. Thoroughly enjoyed revisiting this. And we've also got an interview with a member of the cast who took a part and he appeared in all four episodes and that's coming up for you
1: very very shortly Okay, before we begin our discussion, I think it might be helpful to just outline what the plot of the Aztecs is all about. It's not, I'm not going to make this terribly detailed and I'm not going to go on very long, but it's just to make sure that if we have any listeners who uh, want to participate in the discussion but haven't seen the show, they've got a feeling for what's going on. Right, so what actually happens is that the TARDIS arrives in 15th century Mexico and materialises inside an Aztec tomb. As the crew, in this case the first Doctor, Ian, Barbara and Susan, pop out of the TARDIS to do some exploration, the door of the tomb closes behind them. Now, there's a bit of a, a bit of to and fro and a bit of business, but the culmination is that Barbara is proclaimed as the reincarnation of a god. And from there, the story starts. One of the things we have to remember, of course, is that Barbara is a very moral person. And she's arrived in a land which appears to be her historical specialty. And now she has a chance to aim one of the most defining aspects of that particular society, i.e. human sacrifice. And the story unfolds from there. Doctor,
3: look at this extraordinary city down here. The Aztecs, they knew how to build. We must be pretty high up here. This seems absolutely deserted. Yes, I hope you're right, Chesterton. These Aztecs had some rather gruesome habits. I should hate to be carved up on that by some Aztec high, high priest.
1: The door! Quickly!
3: There's nothing to get a grip on. There must be some way of opening it. Yes, you push from the other side. These tombs were designed to prevent grave robbers not to aid in a them. Ought lock, high priest of knowledge, must, must humbly greets the servants of Ytaxa. Servants of whom, sir? The sir, the high priest. Where's Barbara? Of whom do you speak? The woman who was here a moment ago. In due time, you shall meet again. But first, grant us our courtesies. No evil exists in our hearts towards you. In fact, we honour you.
0: Let's get the ball rolling, guys. Tom, let's start with you. How do you
1: feel about the Aztecs? I love it. It's a great, great story. One, it's historical. Number two, it comes from season one. Number three, it comes from the time when Doctor Who was still about an ensemble cast. It, was, it wasn't just about the Doctor and in the background, there the are sidekicks getting into trouble. Um, I love the fact that it's, uh, it, it's a very open story. It's also very much Barbara's story. Uh, I'm sure we'll discuss some of the ins and outs in terms of running themes as well, but I love it because it's it's one of the last places that the show is about the TARDIS crew as opposed to the Doctor.
0: Trev, what about you?
1: Oh, I, I must agree with Tom. I, I think it's a
2: fantastic story, and it's one of those stories that I always use as an example for watchers of the new series where they talk about, you know, the complex character arcs of our companions now, and I point them all the way back to the Aztecs and go, well, You know, the Companions back then had some very meaty issues to handle back then as well. And like Tom says very correctly, it is a story about Barbara. Um, The rest of the TARDIS crew, Doctor included, are very much secondary characters for the most part in in this story. And it's Barbara that has to deal with the issues. It has to make, I suppose, the ultimate decision that drives this entire story.
0: Mm, yeah, there's an interesting kind of conflict, I think, between the TARDIS team. I mean, you, you you talked about Barbara driving the story, essentially. And, you know, she is of an extreme view, really, that she is suddenly within this particular barbaric, as she sees it, time period. And she's going to improve it. And no one's going to tell her otherwise. And the polar opposite is the Doctor on this occasion. He says very clearly that they are not going to interfere. They're not going to change history. You can't rewrite history, not one line. So it's an interesting contradiction, really, within the way the TARDIS crew approach what is the first kind of story in in some stories. I mean, this is the sixth Doctor Who story ever, that they actually get involved and they do something. In the other stories, you can almost say that they just arrive and they, they kind of watch things happen, and the intention is always to get back to the TARDIS fairly safely and take off again. This is the first time that um, they've actually had some kind of direct impact on a civilization or a society, and also the first time, really, that we see the author trying to kind of get a social commentary through the characters' lines, and I found that quite interesting.
2: Exactly, too. I mean, I, I think the Aztecs is one of those stories that perfectly typifies what they were trying to do with Doctor Who in these early days, to educate people. I mean, you know, you listen to stories like Marco Polo, which have, I suppose, almost science-based lectures in them about how water condensates in warm areas and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But the Aztecs, I think, does it in a lot more intelligent way. It drives the story forward while still... Uh, teaching the viewers about Aztec history and and learning what a a barbaric society they were in some ways.
0: Mm. I mean, do you think it taught them in an accurate way?
2: I I certainly think it does. I think it speaks in a very balanced way because like like you say, we do have Barbara having her extreme opinion about wanting to go in and change this particular aspect of Aztec society, which is the uh, ritual sacrifice side of things. Mm. But we have the doctor, I suppose, as the voice of reason in some respects saying, well, you know, and, and Barbara, to a certain extent, saying, well, you know, that's just one part of their culture that historians seem to have fixated upon. Overall, that they were a very enlightened and, uh, you know, sort of forward culture.
0: Yeah. Now, I mm. think that, you see, is, is, is the recognised perception of the Aztecs today, uh, that they were actually quite an advanced um, society. And yet, I think within the first five, ten minutes, I can't remember which character it is now, but they describe that the way the aztecs live you know as um as barbaric or um and certainly that they indulge in some gruesome habits and uh, mm-hmm. and yet you know that is kind of mixed with some fantastic slapstick as well i think um <laughs> one of the guards helmets tickles a doctor in the face with one of the feathers <laughs> earlier on. And so for me, I think within the first five, 10 minutes, you've got like a whole mix of almost very different genres. You know, you, you've got a historical lesson, which is done through Barbara's info dump about the Aztecs. And, you know, then you've got the sci-fi part uh, as well with the, with the TARDIS being completely cauterized from the story. It's just removed, you know, going back to the TARDIS and taking off is not an option. They've, they've, they've got to get involved. And yeah, I I just
1: really was drawn into this uh, story very, very quickly. Do you know, it, as we're talking about this, I mean, it seems to be one of the most modern of the early Doctor Whos. And I'm thinking particularly about the way that um, the TARDIS crew interact with the natives and what Barbara tries to do. For me, there were really strong echoes of Donna in the fires of Pompeii going on there. Um, also inside this, we've got the Doctor as well as uh, as well as well as uh, Susan. But we've definitely we've definitely got the big theme of the Doctor falling in love, which again reaches forward uh, into uh, it, into some some of the uh, season two, season three stuff that we got with uh, David Tennant and Billy Piper. Uh, I, I don't know well, what I you guys thought. You, I think about
0: you're that. stretching it there a bit, but uh... no. <laughs> I think you're stretching it a little bit there. Which, um, okay. which, ha, I mean, which character do you think the Doctor falls in love with? Because it's certainly not Kamika. Well,
1: he doesn't. Well, this is the thing though. In mean, looking at it, he's not too key, He doesn't seem to be too bothered about leaving. There, there is, there, mm. there, there, there are, there are, there are a couple of places where it's like, well, I, I've made some cocoa and got engaged. He doesn't seem to be running away from her so much. I think it's, it, it's helpful for us as Doctor Who fans to want to believe that the old boy was never ever interested in the opposite sex. But you know, like I say, he's not running. In fact, at the very end, he seems a little no. bit reluctant to leave. <laughs> exactly. There, there is definitely that, that reluctance there. I mean, he, he gives
2: that sort of wistful look back towards the garden and uh, you go, no, this, this guy's sorely tempted to stay with Kamika, Ooh. most definitely.
0: I think he certainly thinks she's charming, intelligent. I mean, he can't extol her virtues uh, enough when he's just after the first meeting with her. But having mm. said that, I think the, the scene you referred to where they were drinking a cup of Bovril... No, not Bovril. Bovril's not cocoa, is it? Horlicks. Yes. <laughs> Horlicks together. When the Doctor suddenly realises this is how people get engaged. The double take he gives the camera is absolutely priceless, and I think it leaves the audience oh. in no doubt that the Doctor didn't mean to get engaged. However, when you, I, when you talk... I
2: think once he's over that initial shock... Yes. ...and, and he yes. has time to think about it, then there, there's certainly many, many times there where you're sort of thinking, is the first Doctor going to, I suppose, hang up his TARDIS key?
0: Oh, I, I wouldn't go that far. I think as soon as he's got over that initial shock... He's only continuing the relationship or the facade of the engagements in order to obtain various different things that will help him gain access to the pyramid that will help him gain access to the TARDIS. And I think this shows the beginnings of how Machiavellian the Doctor would become, certainly in other stories. But I don't think he had any intention at any point ever of staying in that garden. Um incidentally incidentally you can actually go and live in that garden when you retire at 52 years of age uh, and they call it the Garden of Peace. Now, how about that for a particularly advanced society? I would love that. I'm, I'm 37 and if they end up sending me <laughs> off to a nice garden like that in two years' time, I'm going to be very happy, let alone 52. With
1: death.
3: came rain.
0: Does your taxa speak with the voice of the gods or as the protector of a handmaiden?
3: As a god. Then let the brave handmaiden be punished. She tried out and desecrated sacred ground. She transgressed the law. She did not know
0: it. Then let knowledge be beaten into her.
3: No one shall be punished for an offence committed in ignorance. I demand that she be punished. No.
2: Let her instead be taught respect for your customs.
3: I will take her to the seminary.
2: So be it, Ortlok.
3: The great spirit of Yataxa has spoken. No. No, this is not Ytaxa. This is a false goddess!
2: You've got to think of the context of Doctor Who at the time, that we're in a time before regeneration, we're in a time before Gallifrey, yes. Time Lords, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> what we have is, in essence, a leading character who is an old man Seriously considering, well, it might be nice to retire here with this lovely lady mm. and, you know, sp- spend a bit of quality time in the garden. So um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's quite as far-fetched as you, uh, as you like to make out, James. <laughs> well,
0: you're probably right. And I think, you know, despite what you say, there are actually two very interesting lines, which, of course, as you say, they had no context. There was no Gallifrey, there was no Time Lords, et etc. But in episode two, Kamika says, your heart is young, Doctor. And, of course, at the time, he, the Doctor was an old man and the audience saw him as an old man. And you also get the very pivotal concept talked about in the first episode, and we have touched on this earlier, of not rewriting one word of history. And, of course, mm. the, the, the most overt time that I can remember that being referenced in New Who was, I think, The Waters of Mars, where they started talking about fixed points in time. And that was after Faisal Pompeii. And, you know, there's the concept of what you can change and what you can't change has been a subject of a debate, you know, for years and years on end. Hence the reason why we had that rather interesting conversation about um, the number of occasions the Doctor can regenerate, because that was all playing with established history. And I just like the fact that, you know, this was broadcast in, you know, 1964, and I just like the fact that we're actually dealing with that kind of um, premise that was set up as long ago as it was today. What progress do our pupils make at the
3: ceremony, Danila? All are diligent in their studies. And how does Ytaksa's handmaiden fare? Her intelligence far exceeds that of the others, Mm -hmm. and she has knowledge of things known only to the priests. You are surprised?
1: She also serves the gods. She serves other gods than ours. But Toxel, when will you cease to doubt your Tuxel's divinity? I know she is false. She has come amongst us to destroy us.
0: Or to save us. I mean, we've already talked about some of the strengths of this story, I think, and you know it's, it's quite different to the preceding five stories. But for me, one of the things that stands head and shoulders uh, above the other stories is a supporting cast, because there isn't yeah a clunker of a performance delivered at all i think they were all brilliant um, and i want to start if we can by talking about latoxel who's played brilliantly by john ringham who reminds me physically of a bit uh, as a cyber shade you know he's a, he's got this kind of hunched over look and he's just absolute evil incarnate and clearly he's supposed to be the villain of the piece. And yet when you consider what he's actually doing, then the only person who you can really advocate their motives is Latoxel because he's trying to protect his society. He's the one who spots Barbara as being an imposter. And yet he is the one who is outmaneuvered and pretty much you know, pushed to one side and... Villainized, if that's the word, right from the very outset, and uh, I, I just felt that was a really good piece of writing, and uh, brought to life in such a fantastic way by John Ringham.
2: Oh, he, he, he's an incredible actor because he features quite heavily in in a lot of the DVD extras, mm. and he is the nicest, most you know, well mannered <laughs> guy you could ever possibly meet. And then you watch him in the Aztecs, and you go, oh, <laughs> gee, he's he's an evil so and so, isn't he? He's he's just <laughs> dripping with menace and. Intelligence and he, he is a really, really worthy villain in this one. But you know, but
1: you know, he's just playing Richard the I, I <laughs> Third. I was waiting for him to just break out with now is the winter of our discontent, but glorious summer by the sun. You know, come on, but, it, but you're right, it's, it's a very much a boo hiss. I want to say pantomime villain, it's not quite as bad as that, but I think John Ringham as Lox as Loxall. And um, Graham Crowden and Soldied are in the same place. <laughs> well, I,
0: I think that's harsh. I've got to be honest. I, I think I think John Ringan's performance is absolutely pitched perfectly. I and mean, as not to say that I don't like uh, the performance of Soldied either, but I think <laughs> the is just absolutely perfect, and he's got that added, interesting. Twist that he's not actually the villain, although you're buying him as no. the villain um in in whatever way you analyze Latoxel's motives, he is not actually trying to do anything that's um, to the detriment of his society and his people. All right, with the slight exception of killing people and gouging their hearts out. But, I yeah, mean, he's... aside from that, he's actually a pretty well-motivated chap.
2: Yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I do get that. But, I mean, at, at the essence, I, I suppose most Doctor Who villains can be defined as people or monsters who are doing something that the Doctor and his companions disagree with. And while... He he isn't a a true villain in the sense because like you said he is doing something that has been part of his his people's culture for probably centuries I suppose um, he, he he is doing something that the TARDIS crew and by extension the audience find quite awful.
1: You know you say that and you're right but what's If we take a step back from this, what's kind of interesting and a little bit confusing and disturbing, I think, what we're doing is we're applying a 20th century morality, Western society morality, to 15th century Aztecs. And it, it surprises me, again, with an older, more analytical mind that a time lord can't see that. Although that said, it is the doctor that's trying to tell Barbara to stop it. Um, Because frankly, the past, as we say so often, is a different country and they do things differently Mm. there. And James, you make the absolute, absolutely the right point. You know, the the central point in this for me is that Latoxel is doing all of the right things. He is Mm. the first person to look at Barbara and say, well, she's not a god. Look at her; she's clearly not a god at all. Um, whilst the high priest of knowledge has just looked at her and gone, she's a god. At which point, everyone bows yeah. down and accepts it. So, well, no, you're you're quite right.
0: Uh, you're quite right. And um, it's Ortlock, isn't it? The character's name that Keith Pyatt yeah. Uh, plays. Yeah. And yeah, poor yes. chap. Mm. He he comes across as such a nice guy, and you know the way that the TARDIS team play with these two stereotypes is interesting as well. And a couple of Barbara's lines. She kind of makes massive, massive generalizations uh, about the Aztec civilization based purely on Latoxal. Now Susan does this as well with Ortlock and she accuses him of being incredibly barbaric. You know, and the Aztecs being you know absolutely, you know, horrific in the way that they live. And uh, I think certainly to Keith Poet's credit, when Susan goes off at him. He looks like he's been hit almost, and yeah. I, I think because what what Susan are doing, what all of the TARDIS team are doing, are making massive assumptions about an entire civilization based on
1: two extreme portrayals. Mm. Do you know? It, it, it's kind of interesting as well. The there is a a record of oh, do you know what? I need to look this up because i read I read about it yesterday. This is, I did actually do some preparation. Believe me. Sorry about this. Um, the quote I'm looking for is that the, when the Conquistadors first arrived in America, the people um, the, the people, said of them, they're crazy. Look at their noses. Look at their eyes. They're, 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 they seem so pained to be searching for something. We think they're insane. And when you've got, and to be honest with you, looking at the way that Hartnell is and looking at the way the TARDIS crew is interacting with these people, they do seem a bit crazy. Because it's like, literally, who are they to say what you've been doing for the last... X thousand years, is wrong. And as I say, I'm, I'm incredibly um, surprised. Uh, as I not say incredibly surprised. It is surprising with an older mind to see that the Doctor is behaving like this. Um, but it's a, but, but again, I, I, I would, I'd just make the comparison between this and the fires of Pompeii, frankly.
0: I think at the end of, of Pompeii, you've got Donna persuading the Doctor to save one person. And she has a direct influence on how the Doctor acts and the decisions that he makes the aztecs is a bit of an argument there's an argument for four episodes where no one within the tardis family if you like wins or makes their point um and eventually barbara apologizes to the doctor for for doubting what he said very very clearly in the first episode about not rewriting history sorry so yeah they are historical settings but i can't Necessarily see the immediate comparison that you're drawing.
1: Okay, for, for me, it's it's just that little line when when Don is begging him to go back and save one person, and he's saying, "I can't, I can't, we can't do this. I'm sorry, some things have to stand. I, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it." Uh, it's, it's it's that where Barbara's saying, "Well, we must change it." And I was going, "We can't." So, is, is so should we just leave this whole set? But he does. Do you know what? I, I'm on a loser. I'm on a loser. Yep, <laughs> that's good. I'm on a loser. Uh, quite happy make sure you keep this in Trev
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm just sitting here with a shovel let's let's move on to slightly more contentious more in depth more (laughs) intricate stuff don't you think Ian dressed up to do combat looks like an Ergon
1: One of the great things about this show is, as we say, the action's kind of spread out amongst the TARDIS crew, and Ian gets to do a good bit of action hero fighting with the Aztec, Ixta. In fact, there's a, a really quite shocking scene when bodies start falling off pyramids. It's certainly more convincing than in, uh, in The Keys of Marinus, I'll give it that. But we're very lucky to have uh, an interview with the actor who played Ixta, who was part of that choreographed fight with William Russell. On we go, Mr. Ian Cullen. I now have the very great honour of being joined by Ian Cullen, better known to Doctor Who
0: fans as Ixtar. Very, very nice and placid and calm character. (coughs) Um, From the William Hartnell story, The Aztecs. Hello, Ian, and welcome to the Doctor Who podcast.
3: Hello, thank you, James.
0: (laughs) When we first see you in The Aztecs, it's about halfway through the episode, and you're waving a large block of wood at the cameraman. Yeah, that's quite late on, actually. I
3: mean, he was calm and collected until Doctor Who turned
0: up. Yes, indeed. Uh, I was
3: in charge of things. I was doing very well. And then he came along and spoiled everything. <laughs> so he deserved to be hit over the head. with
0: <laughs> And you seem to thoroughly enjoy doing that as oh, well. It. We had a wonderful time doing the fights, yeah. Well, that's, that's one of the very first things on my list, actually. You were involved in three fights yep. throughout all four episodes, two of which were with weapons, one of which was um, hand-to-hand. I'd like to talk a little bit about the choreography. I mean, how, how much time did you spend learning those moves? Goodness, um, not,
3: not very long, I don't think, because, in fact, they weren't very complicated. Um, basically, they were fencing moves. Right, We all learned fencing at drama school, so it was just a sort of we were fencing with clubs.
0: You seem to be William Russell, that you, yeah, were, you were fighting fight all the time. William. Yeah, he seemed to have quite a uh, acrimonious relationship with, uh, with Ian Chesterton. Yeah, well, I was frightened of William Hartnell. So. <laughs> uh, we'll come on to that in a minute, perhaps. but Very, very interesting. I, I think I timed it at round about eight minutes. You see eight minutes of you fighting on screen. Um, so it's quite a significant period of time there, really. But, yeah, let, let's, let's talk about William Hartnell. He's got a bit of a reputation of being difficult on, on set. I mean, what, what was your experience of William Harnell?
3: You said he, never very, he could be irascible, but he was never, never cross with me, but then I didn't have much to do with him. Yeah, he could be irascible, but, but on the other hand, he had a huge load to carry because back in back then in the good old days, carrying a television series like that was a terrific responsibility. Mm, mm. And to be fair, I, I mean, I think a lot of the people who were doing it too, they were, they, they were experimenting. Because, I mean, television is now very, very slick, and it's got a huge um, wealth of experience behind it, and the technicians are properly trained because they know what they're going into. But when we were doing the Doctor Whos, I mean, they, they'd only just got into recording programmes. I mean, before that, it was live. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The, te- the technicians themselves were working with, with uh, equipment that they were learning about. They were, mm. learning, they were learning on the job. Um, so things did sometimes go wrong, and when they did, Bill Hartman used to get very cross. <sighs> yes, because uh, he was carrying a terrific load.
0: Well, when you think about the number of episodes they recorded back then, uh, and compare it to modern day, I of mean, it, yeah. yeah, I mean, learning the lines just must have been an incredible pressure. Yep. I mean, you, you mentioned this, but um, presumably this was very much like producing a live. Play because you say television was in its infancy, and were there a lot of people on the crew uh, who came come out of the theatre to go into TV production?
3: Well, yes, there were actually. Um, I hadn't thought of it particularly for a while, I hadn't thought of mm. that, But yes, there were. I mean, quite a few of the directors, for instance, were theatre directors, and, and the actors, of course, were all theatre actors, so they couldn't be anything else. Mm. And the writers were theatre writers, and so the scripts tended to follow through, they flowed through, they weren't written as mm. uh, like a film script. They were written more
0: like a play, so they could be con- what they called continuously recorded. So was it a relatively easy transition for yourself on the Aztecs? It was pretty easy. I mean, acting
3: is, I've, I've always maintained, some people would argue with me, but I always maintain that acting is acting. <sighs> uh, yeah. that, uh, acting acting for camera, is, is. the main difference is that it's more precise. You can be a little bit looser on the stage, get away with things. Uh, but the, the other side of that coin, of course, is that once you learn to be precise... which you have to be for television and and film, for the camera, Mm. you take that precision onto the stage and you become a much better
0: stage actor. So so I I always think that the camera helps the the stage rather than the other way around. And, I mean, had someone like William Hartnell, who had already done, you know, 12 months or so uh, recording, I mean, did did you learn anything from him? Did you take anything um, from him in terms of the way he approached the show? To, to be honest, I can't say I learned
3: anything from Bill Hartman. Mm. I don't mean that nastily, but I didn't have much to do with him. I learned more from from, from the others, the younger the younger members of the cast. Mm. I mean, John Arena was a great mentor. I mean, he, was, he was a great guy,
0: because yeah. uh, he liked helping younger actors. He always did. He was a um, very, very memorable character in the Aztecs yeah. as well as Latoxel. And again, you had a lot of scenes with him, and I think by the end of the story, Ixtar had pretty much become his henchman. Yeah. Um, did you have a lot of chat... You know, with John Ringham, in terms of how you were going to interact or how you were going to approach the relationship that you sold so well on the screen?
3: No, there's one thing that hasn't changed a lot. I mean, television then, as much as it is now, that you, you tended to learn your words and get up and do it, and then somebody would comment there. I mean, another actor might say, could you be a bit faster or a bit slower or yeah. louder? And, or the director might say that. But what they did was they fiddled with what you what you presented, okay. rather than planning in advance what they wanted you to do. And, and film is much like that, too. You, you, you present something, you offer something, and the director can then
0: adjust it. And uh, the, the one question that I wanted to ask you, of course, um, Ixtar is probably the only main character who's in all four episodes who actually dies at the end of this story, all of the others make it to another day. I, oh, mean, yes. oh, right.
3: I mean, i never thought of that. Do you, do you know this particular story? In this particular I mean, story? Oh, yes. Oh, gets
0: killed. Yeah, Latoxal survives and carries on as a uh, hired chief yeah. or priest of sacrifice, or whatever he is. Because
3: doctor Who wasn't supposed to interfere, was he? He wasn't supposed to really change
0: it. Well, this is why this story is such a key story even in today's doctor who fandom really because the doctor makes such a point of saying you can't change history and of mm-hmm. course ever since then he's done nothing but, nothing but exactly. yeah so it, it's it's always created a lot of fan debate about whether the doctor can influence history or whether he can't and i, I just think that's that's interesting and of course ixtar's demise was because he interested and killed him Indeed, you can't really get much more involved in history than that. <laughs> the really iconic death, isn't it? Yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. yes, indeed. What are, what are your memories of the death scene? If I'm, uh, if I can ask you it's such well, a detailed the, question. The, the
3: fun of that, of course, was the. It wasn't so much the fall. The fall was
0: tiny. I mean, we, we just fell a few inches.
3: It looks as though I fall from a great height, and then you see me lying on the pavement. Yeah. In fact, I'm standing up against the wall. Oh right! Because, because the cameras in those days were so big, they couldn't possibly have hoisted the camera up to do that. So to look down. So what they did was they painted the floor on the wall and then I had to lie against the wall with my arms out looking as though I just crashed down there. Yes, yeah. So it was all done standing up. And the camera was just in its normal face-on position.
0: Well, that works perfectly today. I had absolutely no idea (laughs) that that was the case. So So it was trick photography, which I I was...
3: I'm very intrigued by I mean, him. Uh, I didn't know anything about it. it was, uh...
0: had, had you ever had to play a corpse before? Or was this uh, the first time in your career you had to play a dead person? Well,
3: I've been killed a few times in the theatre. Yeah, I think that's probably the first, camera, first corpse on camera. Yeah.
0: <laughs> cool. I'd, I'd just like to talk about the DVD. This story was released on DVD back in 2002 that's now. Right. And uh, you feature quite heavily in the main documentary, and uh, I'm, I'm just interested as to how BBC Worldwide went about, um, you know, approaching you. Did they just, just give you a call and say, we'd like you to talk about your experiences uh, on the Aztecs, or um, how, how did it actually work?
3: Well, I think it was, rather, it was rather like you. I mean, there was a chap, I've, got, I've forgotten his name now, but um, I actually got a phone call from somebody saying, I'm doing the interviews with the DVD, can I come down and do it? And he was a freelance with the at right, Times, right. a guy from Newcastle. He just came down here and he went out in the garden and did
0: it. So straightforward and it's simple exactly as that. Same as this, couldn't have been. Except like, he like, was professional.
3: <laughs> well, he had, a, he had a, a microphone on his camera.
0: He yep, just, yep. To film, film me
3: and ask questions. And,
0: uh... Did you have to go back over your uh, memories in order to try and. Um... You know, remember certain stories or something? Or was it just a case that this has always been clear in your mind? It's always been a pivotal part of your career. It's
3: very and you can do, part of your yeah. yeah. I, I, I remember it vividly and, and conversations and all sorts of things. That's why I remember that I didn't talk to Jackie very much. You know. uh, she, I don't think I even met her in a scene, I've got a feeling, unless she was just hovering in the background while I was being nasty to...
0: I think there was one know. scene, yes, where she interrupted your fight with Ian. Uh, <laughs> him. Or with, with William, yeah. And uh, that was... Well, I don't think you exchanged any lines, but there was a time when I think all of the regulars were there. But this story is quite notable because it's very rare the regulars are actually on screen together. Um, and it's also notable because you have a number of scenes with other guest actors, um, and again, that's very, very rare in early Doctor Who. There's usually a member of the cast in every single scene. So this particular story um, is, is a great story to be to be in because it's it's so fondly remembered even now amongst fandoms. So uh, and it's and it's an absolute privilege to talk to you about it. <laughs> so, thank you very much indeed for just spending a very short period of time talking to us. Oh,
3: thank you for
2: asking. <laughs> Well, there's James's uh, interview with Ian Cullen. And James, thank you very much for putting it together. And Ian, thank you very much for um, making your time available to the DWP. Um, interesting interview.
0: Absolutely, Trev. And I think it's really rare that you get an opportunity these days to sit there and talk about how Doctor Who was made in the 1960s in as much detail Mm. with someone who who was there at the time and has got quite vivid memories as well so yeah it was a really good opportunity for me to 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 meet Ixtar in the flesh and um yeah Ian also signed a copy of the Aztecs DVD and we got a couple of signed photographs so all chaps will have to come up with a competition before the episode's out I think
2: I'm sure we can, I'm sure we can. Uh, that that probably leads very nicely in, in, into ending our um, look at the Aztecs and recommending wholeheartedly that people go out and source out a copy of Aztecs on DVD. Because not only has it got the most excellent story on it, it's got some really, really interesting extras, which um, quite luckily do feature a lot of the uh, supporting cast from the Aztecs um you know, we, we have interviews with Latoxel. We have interviews with Ixtar. And there's there's some really fantastic stuff there to enjoy. So, um, please, uh, Aztecs is on DVD. You've got no excuse. So, go and check it out. Well, it's about time for us to um, close up the camper van here for this particular episode. But before we go, uh, we have those signed copies of the uh, Aztecs DVD slick as well as a few signed photos of Ian Cullen from the Aztecs that we would love to give away to some lucky listeners. Now we're gonna make this a really, really simple competition. All you have to do is email feedback at the doctorhipodcast.com and let us know what year was the Aztecs broadcast in. Really, really simple. And we've made it even simpler because we mentioned it during this podcast. So what year was the Aztecs broadcast in. And you can win yourself a signed DVD slick from Ian McCullen, or if you're lucky enough, win a signed photo of Ian as well. So um, get your entries in and uh, we'll announce the winner in a soon-to-be upcoming podcast.
0: Great stuff. And I think the last thing for us to talk about is what's coming up next week.
1: Tom. Fine. Well, we um, we're having a, a dip into the Sylvester McCoy Big Finish trilogy, which has been lately released. Uh, we'll be talking about Project Destiny. We'll be talking about the Lurkers of Sun at Sunlight's Edge, and the incredibly popular. Death in the Family, which is, uh, alongside to the death, one of my favourite big finishes of the last few months. Uh, We've also got an interview with the writer of A Death in the Family, Mr Stephen Hall. So all in all, quite a good good lead-up to the beginning of season six. And we might even get uh, a little bit of analysis of some of the uh, trailers coming in the next few weeks as well.
0: So all good stuff, and there's an awful lot to look forward to coming up over the next, well, next few weeks, really, on the Doctor Who podcast. It's going to be fantastic, as you say, Tom, to start discussing some real brand new Doctor Who on the podcast. I'm, I'm getting quite excited about that, especially seeing some of these, well, you could say that they're spoiler-filled trailers that we've seen on mm. the internet over the last couple of weeks. So, yep, trying to trying to step back from it rather than just gush on the podcast we're going to have a measured and we're going to have a major preview of season six and it's going to be our guesswork as well we're going to be trying to put two and two together and probably coming up with 78 we better say goodbye boys goodbye boys bye boys bye bye that was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. Incidentally, incidentally, you can actually go and live in that garden when you retire at 52 years of age uh, and they call it the Garden of Peace. Now, how about that for a particularly advanced society? I would love that. I'm I'm 37 and if they end up sending me off to a nice garden like that in two years' time, I'm going to be very happy, let alone 52.
1: That sounds all right. (laughs) That sounds all right, definitely, definitely. (laughs) Um, I think that sounds like quite a nice way to retire. Well, Western society has something like that, but they're called rest homes. I'm not sure it quite works the same way, though. Oh, (laughs) I can't
0: wait to get into a rest home. That's going to be brilliant. Just sitting around all day, chatting about how things used to be. Look, that's what Doctor Who
1: fans do continually.
2: (laughs) You're not wearing slippers, are you, James? I I hope you're not wearing slippers right now.
0: Hang on,
1: he's wearing a big big nappy.
2: No, they've just come off.
0: (laughs) Slippers are comfy. There comes a point when you suddenly think that slippers are no longer old and fuddy-duddy but they're actually quite practical you know uh, he says just doing up his cardigan and lighting his pipe